Welcome to Dwelling in Magic. My name is Angie, and I am so honored to have today's guest on this episode. Her name is Pamela Carter-Jorn, and she is an author and a playwright, just a beautiful creative spirit moving through this world in all of its beauty and twists and turns, and she just stays so fluid. When doors slammed in her face, she just kind of leaned into the question of what's next, took another class, got another degree. (laughs) She's so smart and thoughtful, and I know you're just going to be inspired by her life like I am. So without further ado, here is Pam. I'm so happy to be sitting down again today with Pamela (laughs) Carter-Jorn. It's a stunning fall day and such fun to have her here in my home. Pam is gracious enough to give me more of her time because it was only a couple of months back that I went to your lovely home and chatted with you about your life and work. And I loved our conversation, but when I went to listen back a few weeks ago, I discovered that there was no sound on the recording. So I'm so grateful for your time again today, Pam. I'm happy to be here. Um, so here we are. And actually, I asked to sweeten the deal. I said, Mom, you should come along because Pam and my mom, Cindy, have been friends. Well, you said? 48 years. 48 years. And hadn't seen each other in quite some time. So it's yeah. fun to yeah. reconnect all together. So I've known Pam and her family since I was a girl because of their friendship. And I loved spending time with them. I loved going to your house in Minneapolis, which isn't too far away from here, right? By That's Pearl right. Park. And I just, I was always drawn to the city in your big old house, and I loved that your girls had an easy-bake oven, too. I never got one of those, Mom. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> you know, I think that was a hand-me-down, like a goodwill buy, because we never mm-hmm. bought them an easy-bake oven. <laughs> I remember it so distinctly, though, in that basement making something with them. But it had been so many years since I had seen, since I'd seen Pam until I recently went to the launch of her latest book, Toby's Last Resort. I devoured that book in a few days. I know you did too, Mom, didn't you? So good. And it was such a sweet reunion with the characters that I loved so much from the first book in that series, The Floor of the Sky. My mom and I both called each other when we finished it, and we were just like, we want more. We want to know what happens. We want more to these characters because they're so lovable and relatable, and you're just a very talented writer. Besides being an award-winning novelist, Pam is also a short story writer and a playwright. Many of her plays were produced and performed in theaters here in Minnesota. She also taught writing at the Laugh Literary Center. Do you still teach classes there? I don't. No, no, no. But I think Pam's creativity knows no bounds. She, as both as a writer and as a maker, I know she has sewn a lot in the past. Clothes and dolls and her quilts are so beautiful. I loved seeing the quilts hanging in your home. So gorgeous. So I got to hear about her life, and her childhood was so fascinating, and it shows up in her writing, so I thought it would be fun to be able to share that with a larger audience, because it's so interesting. So if you wouldn't mind, Pam, I would love if you would take us back again to where you first came into this world. Well, I grew up in the western panhandle of Nebraska. Um, We lived seven miles out of town in a little tiny house. that I think was originally intended for migrant workers, but when my parents, that was the only place they could find to rent. Mm -hmm. So we did not have water in the house. We had an outside toilet and a pump, and my mom had to carry water for washing clothes, and we had to carry water to take a bath, and we did have electricity. 
but I attended a one-room country schoolhouse, which is kind of unusual for someone of my vintage. <laughs> I'm pretty old, but not that old. And um, there were 13 students, um, all boys except one other girl who is quite a bit older than me. And of course, two of those boys were my brothers. So that was a different experience. And um, Were you friends with the other little girl? Well, no, she was older than me and extremely shy. Mm. We just yeah. weren't in each other's orbit. Mm. Um, so I had a lot of time. I mean, my bro I had two older brothers, and one of them was seven years older than me. So he was already working on neighboring farms and stuff when he was about 14. But my other brother, <coughs> Kent, and I were... We were sort of free-range kids. Nice. <laughs> My parents worried more about people than they did um, the outdoors. So mm -hmm. we, we were kind of free to roam quite a bit. And the river was nearby, about a half a mile, maybe, maybe three-quarters of a mile. My brother spent a lot of time there. Fishing and just playing around? Or? Well, they would take a, a pitchfork and spear carp <laughs> and all kinds of stuff and I I was too little to be allowed to go along on those mm -hmm. until my older brother started working and then I do remember one time Kent deigned to take me with him did I tell I don't remember if I told you about I this know. carrying a pitchfork he was carrying a pitchfork and see my by that was probably the period when my dad was working and my mom was doing uh, Stanley parties. So sometimes we were alone for a few hours during the day. And so the grass was pretty high and he got ahead of me and I got scared so I started running and of course I managed to stab the pitchfork through the side of my foot. Oh no! <laughs> and, and I can remember him coming back and looking at it and saying, ah, you'll be okay. <laughs> so. On we went to the river, and if you know anything about the North Platte, it, it's muddy, and we spent the day down there tramping barefoot through the mud and pretending to spear carp. We never did any. We couldn't hit any. But <laughs> And by the time we got home, my foot was very swollen, and I could hardly step on it. I just remember having to soak it in a tub of probably Epsom salts or something. So but that, what an adventure that with your brother. That was a big adventure with my brother. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Oh, okay, and I remember you telling me about your mom selling Stanley products, and I yeah. can't remember. Tell me again what these Stanley products are. Like what? Well, Stanley Home Products, It was uh, there were floor cleaners, mops, brooms, mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff like that. And it was a party plan. Yeah. So mom, this is how my mother ended up supporting our family after my dad was no longer able to work. She had to drive a long lot. Mm -hmm. A lot of her parties were with farm women or ranch women, some of them pretty isolated. And my mom was really good at making it fun. Oh, yeah. She took me with her because... <laughs> If you heard my mom talk about it in later years, she would say, "Oh, I couldn't have, I couldn't have borne leaving you with a babysitter. I wanted to be with you." But uh -huh. my experience <laughs> of that was that I had to go because I was too little to be left home, and I was not allowed to interrupt her during the party. 
There were always other kids who knew each other, but they didn't know me, and I, it wasn't that much fun <laughs> to be the to be the kid along. It was fun in between the parties when Mom and I would get to go out to a drive-in for lunch, or we would sing, and my mom couldn't carry a tune, <laughs> and so a lot of the songs I learned as a kid, I learned off key because <laughs> I'd sing them the way mom sang them <laughs> but she was fun yeah. and um, later when my mom was married to my stepdad somehow I was talking about having to go to these parties and sit as a little kid you know just sit and mm -hmm. wait and he said too bad you were so well behaved you might not have had to go and I thought why didn't that occur to me? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, she she made a life out of it. She had made a lot of friends because those parties were a really important connection for women during that time period who were at home, yeah. you know, especially on farms or ranches. Or, yeah, gave them a connection to other people outside yeah. of that. And I remember you said that because you had, didn't have a lot of kids running around, that you really had time to develop your creative. Like you yeah. thought of stories a lot when you were little. Oh, I did. Well, I was alone quite a bit, probably. I don't remember feeling lonely, mm -hmm. but I did cultivate uh, an imaginary life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I would... Like maybe after school, get my ice skates and tramp out across the meadow by myself. There were always, I think they were just ponds that got formed and they'd freeze and skate and make up stories. Mm -hmm. um, the first book, I read anything I could get my hands on and in my house that was usually Boy's Life, Field and Stream or <laughs> you know, the Bible. But mm -hmm. the first book I actually owned was a book of fairy tales. Mm -hmm. It came from, there was an old coal shed on the grounds of our one-room country school that was full of discarded books. And we cleaned it out and the teacher let us take any of them we wanted to and I took a book of fairy tales. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> it started. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Then, and then you moved to town. We moved right. to town when I was 10, in the middle of fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And that was, for me, a really critical... I loved having that beginning on the land, and I think that kind of imprint of a landscape was, is still with me and it's with me in my writing and how important it is. I'm still, I still love to get out and walk and be outside and be on the land. But we moved to town when I was 10, which meant I could have a friend. <laughs> nice, very and, nice. And I had a lot of catching up to do in the social <laughs> world and, um, in the middle of fifth grade, I would I would really stand on the corner after school and not go home until someone agreed to go with me. I sort of was collecting friends. Uh -huh. And I got to be in the band and things that my brothers didn't get to do because yeah. we were still out in the country when they were. So it was a little town, but there was a library. Mm -hmm. And I immediately got a library card. And... That was another really important thing that I could get books. 
Yes. Lots of books. Oh, yeah. I remember the first library card. It's really exciting. Like, yeah. You have a lot of freedom. You can get as many books as you want. Yeah. And oddly, I remember, you know, I didn't know a thing. And so you asked the librarian, and she pointed me to probably what we would now think of as YA books. But mm-hmm. I'm, and the first two I read were about girls and horses, Copper's Chance and Sintra's Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Why I, I don't remember a thing about the books other than those titles and that they were about girls and horses. Yes. <laughs> were you around horses at all in the country? Uh, not a lot. We didn't no. have any. We had dogs and we raised chickens and we sometimes had cats, but we didn't have farm animals. And you moved to town because your dad got sick and needed or Well, that? we moved. My dad had farmed with his dad. And when my mom and dad got married, he was farming. But when my grandfather died, they never owned land. My grandfather immigrated at 17 from England Mm. by himself. And he and my dad farmed together on leased land. Mm -hmm. And the story I was always told is that my grandfather, they did pretty well, but he refused to buy land because he didn't want to pay taxes to the American government. (laughs) I think he was quite a stubborn old cuss. Uh I'm sure there were other reasons. But so when Gramp died, then dad um, sold half the machinery so that my grandmother had something to live on. So that meant things were harder for him to do it on his own. And my dad was... um, an excellent mechanic and an excellent farmer, but he wasn't the person who had done the business end of farming and got mm-hmm. the loans from the bank and negotiated for migrant workers. And he was not so good at that. And mm-hmm. so they they didn't have a good experience. And my mother always said they were hailed out seven years in a row. So before I was born, they had a farm sale, which mm-hmm. basically in their case meant selling all the machinery. And I don't think my dad ever found his way after mm-hmm. that. For yeah. him, I think for my mom, my mom was 13 years younger than my dad. And I think she thought, thank God we're out of that farming mess. <laughs> but for dad, that's what he knew and loved. Mm-hmm. So he worked at other things for a while and then he began to have health problems. So they lived in in rented houses, and what would happen, we finally moved out of that um, tiny little house to a, a really nice house about a mile and a half away. But we only lived there, I don't know, three to six months, and that property was sold. So we had to move. And we moved to town then. Mm-hmm. My dad didn't want to. You know, part of it was what was available. And we lived there for a little while, and that got sold. So then we moved to a house in town, which was really too small for our family because it's all it was available. You know, this is how it worked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then we moved, but when I was in, I guess, ninth grade, we moved to a very nice house, still a rental house. And we lived there until I was a senior in college. And Brad and I had set our wedding date, and that house got sold. And so my mom and dad had to move like three weeks before our wedding. Oh my goodness. It was a mess. So my mom finally 
said, I'm buying a house. Oh. My dad never wanted to buy a house in town. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to tie himself to having to live in town, even though by then it was obvious that <laughs> there was no other option for him. But mom... She did it. She did it. She, she went against his wishes. He was fairly uh, passive at that point. It's not like there was a big fight about it, mm -hmm. but it's not what he would have chosen. But she, she earned did. the money, like with her company and stuff. Oh, yeah. She bought, that she bought that house, and then she lived there till she was 92. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. My gosh. Well, she, you said she remarried at some point after She did. Dad my passed. dad died uh, a week before my 30th birthday. Oh. And then mom remarried a man whose wife had also had a long illness. And they were together for 10 years, and then he died. Hmm. He was a wonderful guy. And they were very happy. Oh, that's so sweet. That, it was sweet. So you said you lived in that house during college, and so you studied... What did Were you studying writing in college? Did you... I went to the University of Nebraska, and at that point... Um, it was different than if you wanted to be a teacher, you were in the teacher's college part of the mm -hmm. university. You didn't, and so that, I was in teacher's college, which meant I took education classes. Mm -hmm. But I majored in English and speech with the idea that I was going to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I avoided all creative writing classes. You did? Mm -hmm. How interesting. Because I was afraid <laughs> of them. Well, I thought, I figured, I loved to write, and I did kind of write for fun, but I thought if you were really a writer, I had this romantic idea, I guess, that you would have been discovered, you know, you'd know mm -hmm. that you were a writer, and nobody had ever told me I could write, and I, I was afraid of it, and uh, didn't really think about writing until when we lived in Des Moines. I had a friend named Ruth who was writing poetry. And I sort of thought, well, if Ruth can write poetry, <laughs> I can write poetry. <laughs> and so I started writing poems. I think really terrible poems because I was trying to write the kind I'd studied in college, you know, formal sonnets and what did I know? Mm -hmm. But I was really um, engaged in it. And then Ruth, Ruth was going to go to the Writers' Conference at Green Lake, which is, you know, the conference center of American Baptist churches. <clears throat> and so I went with her. She and I went together, left my kids at home. You know, it was really a big deal to get to go to something like that. We were going as poets, which meant we'd get to work with a professional poet. Mm -hmm. And I really thought I was going to finally be, I was going to be discovered. Yes, this is your mom. <laughs> I'm going to go and, you know, be Emily Dickinson. Mm -hmm. And when we got there, uh, we learned that the poet had died. Oh, no. <laughs> like the night before. <laughs> I, I actually have written a, a, a book of kind of personal essays titled Because the Poet Died. <laughs> but, but So he wasn't even going to be there. And we were assigned instead to a man who had written 23 self-help books. And we were young, you know, and so he wanted to meet with us individually, and I met with him the very first day in a kind of secluded alcove, which was his choice. And uh, he told me my poems were terrible, which 
I think might have been accurate, but he could have been kinder. (laughs) And then he put his hand on my knee and said he could help me in private sessions. Oh my goodness. And so I I knew I couldn't do that. (laughs) I didn't want anything to do with that. And so I kind of wandered around the room and there there was a room full of people who were sort of laughing and I stood in the doorway and the teacher was a woman named Dorcas Shainer, and it was about um, writing drama for the church. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, that looks like fun. Maybe I can do that. <laughs> so I joined that group, and that's how I got started writing for theater. My gosh. Yeah. That seems like a fortuitous thing, to have an old, creepy, lecherous guy yeah. steer you in this other direction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the other poet who died. Oh, my gosh. It was a clear, like, don't go that way. <laughs> No, a tree is not. I know. So, so we were working with a youth group at Westover then, and I started out writing little drama pieces for that group of kids, and they were so willing to do them. We just mm-hmm. happened to have a great group of kids who would, who enjoyed doing that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, and then we moved to Minneapolis, and um, somewhere along the way, I decided to try to write a full-length play, and I did, and I met Susan. Maloof, who was the drama director at Bethel College, and mm-hmm. she and I formed a friendship and eventually started a little theater company. And oh my gosh, what was your theater company called? Roll R O L E Roll Over Productions, mm-hmm. because and this was Susan. She was very interested in cross gender casting mm-hmm. long before the Jungle Theater thought of it. <laughs> so we were. We were experimenting with that. And the whole thing behind it, it was all very driven by feminist theory, was that a whole lot of our behavior that we attribute to being masculine and feminine is learned. And so if actors can effectively play an opposite gender role, it's sort of proves the point that it's mm-hmm. a learned behavior. Mm-hmm. We had really a lot of fun exploring that. So you had a couple plays that you produced and and We were... produced um, two of my original plays and then two others, and that was it because then Susan uh, had some pretty severe health issues mm-hmm. and wanted out. Mm-hmm. That was painful. Because we were just starting to get grants, and we had built this theater space at Sabathony Community Center, and wow. but another yeah. sort of slammed door. Wow! So what? When that door slammed, did you did you write any more plays? Uh, well, so that door slammed, and meanwhile, I had gone to seminary. Thinking, During, well, what what inspired that? Um, well, I went to seminary. About the same time that I was playing around with writing plays, and I believed that I was going to do drama in the church. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought I was going to do. I'd always, you know, I'd been drawn to church and religion as a child all my life, and I thought that was a great way of putting the two together. So then the the theater door slammed, but meanwhile... um, we didn't start the theater till I graduated from seminary. But when I was in seminary, 
I wrote a piece with a woman who was doing some, she was a dance professor at St. Olaf and she mm. was doing some work at the seminary. And I wrote a reader's theater piece that was about women as a prophetic voice mm. and she did dance to it. And so the Dorcas Shaner, the woman who I'd met at Green Lake, was involved with Church Women United and she called me and asked me if we had anything that could be done at it. It was going to be a big international thing in Chicago, and they would fly us there, and you know we'd be on the main stage. And I said, well, I have this Reader's Theater piece. Great, she said. So we were all set to do this, and I thought this was... <laughs> like I'm going to be Emily Dickinson. This yes, is going to be your my next breakthrough. <laughs> and... Maybe three weeks before, or even less than that, before we were set to go, I had offered to send the manuscript. She didn't want to see it. But then the Church Women United board did want to see it. So I sent it, and then I got a phone call that they thought it was brilliant, they thought it was important, but they didn't think their constituency was ready for it, so they mm. dropped us from the program. Ouch! Really ouch. And what was what was it about? What was it that made them feel that way? What Honest was it to God, with? don't know. You don't. I mean, if you looked at it now, you'd think it was so tame. The premise of it was that I was using some prophets' voices from the Old Testament, and I was juxtaposing them with comments of women in the 20th century. And mm -hmm. I don't know. It was way too much for them back then, huh? Too much. So my response to that was, I got the letter, I went straight to the phone, I called the seminary, and I changed my degree program from the MDiv to a Master of Arts in Religious Studies. Really? Right because, then? Because I thought, I can't do this. I can't write what I want to write or what I feel is true to what I'm learning mm -hmm. within the church. Mm -hmm. They just mm -hmm. want you to reinforce what they already believe, and that was not of interest to me. Wow. So, so I, right then, I walked straight to the phone. And that turned out to be a really good move for me <laughs> because it was... So every time that these choices came along, you know, I, I was... I look back now and I think I was choosing the creative mm. voice. But, you know, it was scary because, let me back up and say, mm. when my dad had this farm sale, my dad thought he was going to be able to be a songwriter. Really? He had written some songs mm. and he had performed at a local talent contest and he had one song published by a Vanity Press. We have all 25 copies. So, and the upshot of this was my mother, who was practical, had to be, was highly suspicious of anything remotely smacking of an art career. Interesting. It was not possible to make a living at it. It was something you did as a hobby. So... All of us kids were raised to think, you know, so I always had this. It was ingrained. I'm, this is who I am. This is what I'm drawn to, but it's not okay. Mm -hmm. I should be doing something that's more 
makes money and yes. is more practical. And mm -hmm. that was always a struggle for me. I mean, Brad luckily had a very good job and it was a demanding job so that if I'd had a demanding job alongside it, we'd have had a very different family life. But I, and he never pressured me and he was always supportive, but it was always my internal struggle. Mm -hmm. And yet when I came to the place where I had to make a choice, I was choosing, I see, always to go with the inner the yes. inner part of me that needed to have some honest expression or, you know, that I felt like that was my calling, I guess, to be able to express what I was learning and feeling and seeing about the world yeah. without that, without having to fit into some kind of mold. Wow. That's beautiful. So, so I changed my degree program, and the Master of Arts in Religious Studies was much more freeing. Mm -hmm. But it also meant that then I didn't feel like I was going to be working in a church. Mm -hmm. So we started the theater company, and then that door closed. <laughs> and so then I was a little lost. Mm -hmm. I thought, now what? So then I had a friend who invited me to sit on a committee at the Council of Churches. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got involved with ecumenical work for many years as a volunteer mm -hmm. and involved with the whole reimagining conference. And I did write a commissioned play for that international conference that we held. Wow. And it was in, you were able to have it performed? And yeah. yeah. It, it was done as part of the conference. Mm -hmm. But, um, so, f that was a period during which I talked a lot about writing, but wasn't doing a lot. Mm. And, um, and then when Reagan went to college, I decided I would get it, go back to school and work on an MFA. Because I wanted to be in a place, in a community where writing mattered. Mm -hmm. And I'd also, I had tried to write a novel. I did write a novel. But it was a bad one. <laughs> I wrote a bad novel. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know. And I, what I figured out is, I don't really know how to write a novel. Mm -hmm. There must be things you can learn. Yes. Well, and I equated it to like. By then, I was. I had learned quite a bit about quilting, and and it was sort of like this. I had looked in a magazine and saw a little quilt that I thought I could make for my mother-in-law. It was a little wall quilt. And I pieced it together perfectly. But then when it came time to actually quilt it, you know, put the batting in the backing, I tried to machine quilt it. I didn't know what I was doing, and I ruined it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I took some classes, and I learned, oh, you know, there's actual things to learn about this. Well, that's how I felt about mm -hmm. writing. I thought, there's probably, you know, basic skills one can learn. <laughs> So I wanted to go back to school, and I wanted I wanted to just have the freedom to explore whether this was something I could actually do. Yeah, and I did. There were a lot of my classmates went there with a idea for a novel in mind, and that's what they worked on in every class. I didn't I didn't know whether I wanted to write fiction or nonfiction. So for me, it was much more exploratory. But I did end up 
for my thesis, I wrote, I did end up writing what I thought of as a whole lot of short stories set in western Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember my thesis readers. Some of them were, my, my idea was, <laughs> some of them were about a family, and then some of them were about tangential people that the family might interact with. And my readers said, basically, you know, these are great, but one or the other, and we vote for the family. Mm-hmm. So what happened is, eventually, as those family stories became the plain sense of things mm-hmm. with a lot of work. And some of those others that weren't about the family ended up in my collection of stories mm-hmm. in Reach. Mm-hmm. But the novel, The Floor of the Sky, wasn't part of any of that. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. And that happened because after I graduated from that program, um, I wrote a grant application in which I said I'd like to write a novel, and I got the grant. Wow. <laughs> so then I had to sit out and do it. Oh <laughs> it was really kind of like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess I have to do this because I said I would. Yes, grants are good for pushing that. Yeah, you and that yeah. that way. That's so cool. that's how that happened. So that was my first book published, but some of those other writings reworked later into other work. So. Oh my gosh! And your where you grew up is the backdrop of those books. It's yeah, really cool. You know, like sometimes when I go to book clubs, I ask people to talk about where they lived when they were eight years old. Because I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I think for a lot of people, you're kind of imprinted with the landscape or the community or whatever it is of your childhood. I find lots of landscapes beautiful. Mm-hmm. Minnesota's beautiful. But there's a another thing that happens when you're in that landscape of your childhood that is about belonging and your heartstrings. Oh yeah, and for me, that's that open prairie is where yeah. that happens. And did any character come to you for well, Toby? Did- my mom was. How to, can I say this? My mom was really close to her sisters, so somehow I came up with the idea of Toby and her older sister Gertie mm-hmm. that there'd be these two sisters, mm-hmm. and they would each have a grandchild, and the. You know, it is even hard to remember how you come up Mm -hmm. with these ideas. Yes. But I do remember that I kind of had the basic idea that it would be about um, Lila going there pregnant and Toby and Gertie, you know, would be living in the same house but 10 years apart. And then I remember when I was starting to write it, I wrote the first chapter and I found myself writing about Toby's history and things, and I thought, well, I don't even know if that's possible. I mean, I was writing about her grandfather doing this or that, and so then I had to spend about a week working out an elaborate family tree, much of which does not appear in the book. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, you know, I had to, because originally I would have, I had a character who, if they had done what I said they did, would have to be about 145 years old. <laughs> So I had to work all that out and give them a framework. And then the next challenge was, I thought, well, they have to do stuff. You know, <laughs> this, this is a novel. Stuff has, they have to do stuff. And I 
and I came up with the idea of some reasons why the community would gather. Like mm. there's the branding in that mm. book, and there's the Fourth of July parade, mm-hmm. and reasons, and there's the rodeo, so that there were these reasons for the community to gather and then I could have interactions and And it came to you piece by piece that that I mean must be really really fun to have it evolve as you it is fun Mm -hmm. and scary I've never been I'm not the kind of writer who works it all out ahead of time but with a novel you have to have a a general direction or you can find yourself really going off. If I'm writing a short story, I don't want to know the end when I start. You don't? Mm-hmm. Because I think if it's not a discovery for me as a writer, it won't be for the reader either. Mm-hmm. But um, but with a novel, you do have an ending. I don't, I don't have an elaborate outline or anything like that, but I have a vague idea of where it's heading eventually. Yeah. Right. And then i got to figure out how to get there. <laughs> I wish I could say that I absolutely trust this, but I and I don't know any writers who. It's always terrifying to face a blank page, mm-hmm. and I always feel like I should have more of an idea than I do when I start. But then the miracle is it happens on the page, mm-hmm. and you'd think by now I'd know that that I could just trust it, but I, I don't. I agonize over well, I don't really have an idea, <laughs> and then finally it's like well I just. I trick myself. I'll just write this and throw it away. And then when I get started, it takes. That's where it takes off. That's true of every art form. I think. I think it, it is just, too. The I always sit down. And really like, hard. What a, I don't know how to do this. I don't, yeah. But it is putting down the first piece, putting down the first word, and, and then it, it does. Goes. It does. You get into yeah. that flow, but and it is scary every time. Beginning. It is. It's wild. And, then, the, and then the fun of it is when those discoveries happen. Yes. Yeah. Do you just come running down the stairs sometimes and like, Brad? I don't know. Do you tell him along, <laughs> along the way? I don't, you know, when I first started trying to write, Brad would, he's smart and he reads and he likes literature, but I learned very quickly that it didn't work for me to have him read my stuff because I didn't need him to be a critic. Mm-hmm. I needed him to be my most loyal fan. Yes. And yes. and um, so kind of early on, I learned not to show him work. In fact, I don't show anybody my you know. work anymore in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I need to kind of get it out, and then I need readers. But yeah, that's it. Well, Adam, my husband, is a writer, and when we were when I was starting to write songs, I was. We thought, oh, we could write together, but also it didn't work. He he also has a very different take on life, and and our writing styles did not match. It was like, nope, yeah. you can just you do you, and I'm gonna yeah, it just right. didn't work in the no. way that I hoped it might. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I can see how it's like that. So after you finished your first novel, did you know that there was going to be another one? That I'd... well, after I you know that novel. Um, because it was selected as a Barnes and Noble Great New Writers selection. Wow, that must have been exciting. It was very exciting, and you know, it's this a- is a moment that you're like, I've got. I was always another one of those. And and it got uh, more attention than we thought it would. So I I did think, yeah, maybe there will be something else. But then the next 
The reason the next book happened was kind of funny. I had sent that novel. Well, I purposely wanted a small press. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a small press book. So I sent it to three small presses at the same time. University of Nebraska and a little press in upstate New York called the Permanent Press, which I chose because I thought it was such a clever name. It is. Run by a husband and wife couple for, I think now going on 40 years. And so then University of Nebraska took it quickly. So I wrote the other two places and withdrew it. But after the book was on the shelves published, I got a phone call one day from the wife part of this pair at the Permanent Press who had just gotten around to pulling that manuscript off. So you can see how long it takes if you send an unsolicited manuscript, wanting to know if it was still available. (laughs) And I said, well, no. And I did write you a letter. She just laughed about that. She said, well, I, I just now looked at it and I really liked it. So I said to her, well, I have this other collection of the plain sense of things that I'd been working on, which I thought of as kind of a novel told in stories. And she said, okay, you know, send it to me. So I hung up and I thought, I should have given the University of Nebraska a shot at that. Mm -hmm. So I called Ledette Randolph, who was the editor at Nebraska then. She said, send it to me first, give me two weeks and she took Mm -hmm. so that's why that came about otherwise I probably would have been sitting around on that for two or three years (laughs) screwing up my courage to send it out oh my gosh it does take real courage doesn't it oh my gosh and I got lucky that Ledette really liked it and took it right away and wow it is such a good book that's why it's so good you are such a good writer thank you very clear these books are meant to be in the world they're just so good. Well, so the second one came, though, I've during COVID. Well, I had gotten invited to go to a writer's workshop in the Sandhills right before COVID struck. Mm-hmm. And that was a lovely experience. And I had forgotten how it was sort of a reminder to me how much that landscape speaks to me. And then, you know, while you're there, you have to do something. <laughs> you're supposed to write. <laughs> so... I reread The Floor of the Sky at that time, and then I started just making some preliminary notes mm-hmm. about a follow-up book. And then I got to go to another writer's conference in Rainy Lake on a oh, little yeah. island. And, and so I wrote, I worked on the character descriptions, and I wrote an opening chapter. Mm-hmm. And then I put it in a drawer. And I don't know if I would have found the time to go back to it, but then when COVID hit, I mean, literally two days after they announced that we were all going to be home, I said to Brad, well, I'm going to write a book. Mm-hmm. And I did. <laughs> so wow. a lot of creative people that are friends of mine thought they would have all this time and all this energy to do it. And you were really one of the only people I know who made something really big during that time. So bravo. Well, thank That's you. That's amazing. For me, it was a kind of a sanity project. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could disappear into the work every day. And, yes. and, and, I, and a gift of time, because my life is kind of broken up in pieces now, by choice, mm-hmm. because we want to see our kids and our grandkids. And 
I don't have, it takes a big block of time to write a novel because this, you lose the story if you're out of it too mm -hmm. long. So, and then it took the University of Nebraska Press for forever to get around to actually reading it and taking it. And then it took them a long time to actually publish it. Almost two years for that whole thing because it was just came out this past winter, spring. Yep. Did you go touring with your book? Well, touring is a bit lofty. <laughs> I, you know, it's a small press. They don't have a ton of money for marketing. I'm not a known writer beyond my immediate world for the most part. So I did some readings in Omaha and Lincoln and here. Small but devoted. Yeah. There is at the one at your well, church was so sweet. All yeah. of your friends and community there. Yeah. It was really it was sweet. Do you are you still writing these days? Like do you have a practice of journaling or are you I do always journal. You do but that's more of a I always think sometimes I burn my journals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there's wonderful stuff in them that I hate to lose, but there's also that's kind of where I bury all my angst. Oh yes. You Me know. too. I know. I have about fifty downstairs. I sound so neurotic. I don't know that well, I want it's personal. Yeah, it is these. a it's very... where I expun. But I do I have been working on uh, oddly a collection of essays. I don't know if anything will ever happen with them, but yeah. I like but you're enjoying it. it. Mm -hmm. And what does your life look like right now? We just got back from two weeks in Portugal. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How wonderful. That's the first sort of big trip we've taken since COVID. Wow. It was nice to know we still can. Yes. <laughs> and it worked out well. But, you know, we, we're going to go to Denver for Thanksgiving. Yeah. We're, we're going to go in February for three weeks to California and live. People who live next door to Reagan and Jacob Airbnb their home. Oh, fun. And we're yeah. going to be next door for three weeks. Oh, that'll be nice. The grandkids will love popping over. And I hope so. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And I think Shannon and her kids will come out one weekend while we're there. So That sounds so lovely. Yeah. But as far as your writing, you don't know if there's any other, besides the essays, like if there's anything else that's going to call to you. Don't know. I will probably always be writing, but whether I want to write for the public or not, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you have <laughs> shared your gifts with us. And it's so cool to see the, the golden thread that has gone through and your whole life quilt it's just really interesting to hear sometimes angie when i have talked about my sort of life story i have thought of it as a series of failures you know mm -hmm. this didn't work so i did that this mm -hmm. did. but i'm trying to learn to um re what do i want to say re reframe that mm -hmm. even in my own mind i look back now and i think well there were choices you know, things did get closed to me, but but there is always this um, continuous thread of art and and my spiritual life mm -hmm. that have continued to carry you through. Carry. What a beautiful life's quilt Pam has created. And all of those beautiful golden strands of spirituality and creativity interweaving with one another. The end result stunning. I feel like a crazy quilt half the time, but I'm okay with that too. And I'm so honored and inspired by everyone who will share their story with us. I know we're all changed by it. Thank you so much for your time today, friends. And until next time, tell me, 
What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Let me fly, 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 fly. my heart in front of me. Oh, let me fly, 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 fly. Place my heart.